Chapter fourteen of Lancashire Characters and Places by Thomas Newbigging. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Some Lancashire Characters and Incidents. If we would find the unadulterated Lancashire character, we must seek for it on and near to the eastern borders of the county, where the latter joins up to the west riding of Yorkshire. Roughly, a line drawn from Manchester in the south through Bolton and Blackburn, and terminating at Clitheroe in the north, will cut a slice out of the county palatine, equal, on the eastward side of this line, to about one-third of its whole area, and it is in this portion that the purest breed of Lancashire men and women will be found. A more circumscribed area still, embracing Oldham, Bury, Rochdale, the Rossendale Valley, and the country beyond to Burnley and Colne, contains in large proportion the choicest examples of lancashire people and it is within this narrower limit that john collier tim bobbin first of all then oliver ormerod with whom i was well acquainted in the fifties and later war Briley, and other writers in the vernacular have placed the scenes of their stories and sketches and found the best and most original of their characters the authors i have specifically named are themselves good examples of that character war paramountly so distinguished as they are by a kindly hard-headedness a droll and often broad wit which exhibits itself not only in the quality of their writings but also in their modes of expression and a blending in their nature of the humorous with the pathetic lending pungency naturalness and charm to their best work the peculiarities to which i have referred are due to what in times past was the retiredness of this belt of the county its isolation, its comparative inaccessibility, its immunity from invasion. As the coast of any country is approached, the breed of the inhabitants will be found to become more and more mixed, losing to a large extent its distinctive characteristics. And it is only by an incursion into the interior that the unadulterated aborigines are found in their native purity. Here these conditions no longer exist with anything like the old force excepting it may be in some obscure nook out of sound of the locomotive whistle and of these there are still a few left though not many the old barriers of time and distance have been obliterated the means and incentives to migration have become so easy and great that our besom bens and abathiates are grown as scarce as spade guineas or as the wild roses in our lancashire hedges and will ere long exist only in the pages of our native humorists. We owe ungrudging thanks to the writers in the vernacular for the treasures with which, during the last thirty or forty years, they have adorned our Lancashire literature, for having taught us so much of homely wisdom in the quaint tongue of our people, and opened up to us in wider measure than we previously knew the bright common sense and humour that are enshrined in their hearts. They have shown us how rich in resource is the dialect of the county, compacting and crystallising its proverbs and phrases, and have proved how capable it is of giving expression to the natural affections. It is only of comparatively recent years that we have been able to appreciate the wealth of the dialect in these respects. All the material was in existence before, but it needed the cunning hand of the master to make literature of it, to weave up the warp and woof, and present them to us in an embodied form. A good deal of the humour of our Lancashire writers is of the rollicking kind, no doubt. It does not always belong to the school of high culture. 
but we have got the characters true to the life, and he is a fastidious critic or worse, who would prefer a counterfeit presentment to the genuine portrait. In the course of a lifetime spent chiefly in Lancashire, I have come in contact with many of its odd characters. In the Rossendale district especially, with which I have been familiar for many years, I knew some of the quaint old inhabitants long since passed away, whose remarks, as well as their reminiscences recounted to me, interested and amused me, as some of which I have been trying to recall. And here I may say that from a considerable acquaintance with War's writings, I have observed that, in his prose sketches, wherever his references to Rossendale occur, they are in his choicest pieces. The very mention of the name seems to open up within his mind a fine vein of poetic inspiration which is reflected on the page. For example, in his sketch of Doolsgate and in The Old Fiddler, in his Letters Written During the Cotton Famine, where he speaks of the Dane Layrocks, in The Barrel Organ and others. It must be admitted, however, that the old charms of rurality and originality, as I once knew them, are now less felt in Rossendale. The narrow valley is crowded with mills and houses, the smoke of whose chimneys pollutes the atmosphere, and from a rural community, with its peculiar officers and quaint old-world customs, it has been parcelled out into a couple of gawky boroughs, whose legs and arms, long and lanky, are out of proportion to the body to which they respectively belong. Some years ago, also, they were imported into the district to meet the exigencies of the cotton trade, a large number of families from the south country, foreigners they are called, and this element, I am not speaking disparagingly of it, has necessarily had its effect in modifying the character of the inhabitants. Bull-baiting was formerly a common sport in Rossendale, as in other parts of the country. A stake was fixed in the centre of the baiting-ground, to which the bull was tethered by a rope, when its canine tormentors were let loose upon it, amidst the yelling of a brutalised mob. I once, curiously enough in my own experience, met with an example of the actual memory of the pastime having survived to a recent date. An old Rossendale man one day attended a camp meeting held in a field at Sharniford, some distance away, and on afterwards inquiring if he got to the meeting in time. Yea, was his reply. I geet there just as they were teeing the bull to the stake, meaning that the preacher was just about opening the services. Rossendale was by no means singular in its relish for this degrading practice. The late John Harland, in his introduction to the Manchester Court Leet Records, recounts the fact that in Manchester in former times, amongst the heaviest fines, or as they were called, amercements, on the butchers, were those for selling bull beef, the bull not having been previously baited to make the flesh tender enough for human food. A significant commentary this on the morals and civilization of our forefathers. To the introduction of water and steam-power machinery in the earlier part of the century, there were no stronger or more bitter opponents than the Rossendale folks. In the early days, in many of the larger houses, were hand-machines for the carding, spinning and weaving of woollen, whilst nearly every one of the smaller houses had its handloom. And when the factory system began to be introduced into the district, and water power was employed in turning the machinery, the strong prejudices of the inhabitants found vent in the form of a prayer, which in seasons of drought ran thus, The Lord send rain to till the ground, 
but do not turn the engines round. The woollen carding engines are here referred to, these being put in motion by the water wheel. But times of extreme drought in Rossendale are not of frequent occurrence. The hills bring down the rain. And in the barley times, as the famine times at the beginning of the century were called, the people had a saying that there was plenty of porridge waiter in Rossendale if there were only the meal to put into it. Hareholm Mill in the Rossendale Valley was one of the first mills, as well as the most important mill in the district. It belonged to a Quaker firm, and was built at the end of last century. The chimney of this mill, which was erected at a later date, is a curiosity. It resembles a champagne bottle, with its broad base quickly gathered in near the centre, and tapering to the summit. The cap of the structure is an exact copy of a Quaker's broad-brimmed hat, without doubt intended by the humorist of a builder to exemplify the religious tenets of the members of the firm the ram which surmounts the belfry typical of the woollen manufacture was executed by an ingenious workman named john nuttall and bears an admirable likeness to the original an architect from a neighbouring town criticising it freely and trying to display his superior taste expressed the opinion that the model of the ram as designed was all very well done excepting the horns whereupon nuttall naively replied that whatever the merits of the body of the animal the horns were just as god had made them as a matter of fact they were an actual pair of ram's horns that he had used the powerloom breaking riots of eighteen twenty six are another exemplification of the bitter feelings that were evoked by the application of steam power to the turning of machinery the rioters in Rossendale made havoc with the new-fangled looms, which they believed would ruin their trade as hand-loom weavers, and take the bread out of their mouths. Their mode of procedure on attacking a mill was to place a guard outside, then the ringleaders entered. First they cut out the warps, and destroyed the reeds and heels, and then, with a few well-aimed blows, they demolished the looms. On the cry being raised, The soldiers are coming! One old fellow cried out, Never mind, lads, we met as we'll be shot by the soldiers as clem by the maesters. I've mentioned this circumstance by way of introducing Long George, the constable of Bacup during those disturbed times, an eccentric character whom I knew well. George stood six feet two in his stockings, hence the prefix Long to his name. It was but little that George and his myrmidons could do to prevent the mischief and so with the instinctive sagacity of the watch they wisely kept aloof from the scenes of outrage and spoliation long george was a familiar figure in bacup for many years after being superseded in his duties of constable by the police as we now have them at the beginning of his time when he was village constable he lived in lanehead lane on one wintry night cold and stormy the snow drifting heavily a night when folk could hardly keep their nightcaps from being blown off some young fellows determined they would play a trick on george so they waited until they knew he had got well into bed and then they went up to his house in the lane and thundered at the door george got up put his head out of the window and saw two or three snow-covered figures down below whatever done you want chaps at this time and eat he called out one of them shouted back in reply George, you're wanted down at the dragon yonder first thing. 
"'What's the matter there?' asked George. "'There's about twenty of em yonder, fatin' over rook, "'and if they don't look sharp and come down and sunder em, "'there'll be one half an em kilt.' "'But George was not to be caught as easily as they imagined. "'He saw through the trick that was attempted to be played on him, "'and ruminating for a moment, answered, "'I'll tell you what you mun do, chaps.' "'What mun we do, George?' they asked. "'Go your ways back to the dragon,' said George, "'and lay em out on the tables, as many on em as gets kilt, "'and in the morning I'll come down and count em. "'And with that he crashed the window down again, "'leaving the discomfited jokers to find their way back "'to the bar-parlour at the dragon as best they might. "'Latterly George did duty as a bailiff, "'attending auction sales, keeping the door, "'and handing the drink round to the thirsty bidders.' He wore a blue coat with metal buttons, knee-breeches and brown stockings, with a pair of clogs at least fourteen inches in length, and a sole an inch and a half thick. He was also adorned with a blue apron which was usually tucked round his waist, and he wore for years an old felt hat that had scarcely a vestige of brim left. George, when I knew him, lodged with two elderly maiden sisters, Anna the Kiln and Judy, but he kept his own room in order, and did his own cooking. One evening George's supper was on the fire, and some practical jokers being on the lookout attracted his attention outside, whilst one of them slipped in and emptied a cupful of salt into the pot. George, on sitting down to his evening meal, found the porridge so over-seasoned that it was impossible to eat them. He tried again and again, muttering to himself, "'The latter come to it, George,' but it was of no use." He had to give them up at last. Determined, however, that they should not be thrown away or otherwise wasted, he got a pudding cloth, and tying them up in this, hung them from the ceiling of his room, and instead thereafter of salting his porridge in the usual way, he cut a slice from the over-salted compound as long as it lasted, and put it in the pot, so saving both salt and oatmeal. By frugality and self-denial, George managed to save a considerable sum of money, and was in the habit of lending it out on security at good interest. Somewhat akin to this display of frugality was the action of some of the first co-operators in Baycott. They early followed the example of the Rochdale pioneers, their society being established in the year 1847. They had a good deal to learn in those early days, and made mistakes in buying. One of the mistakes, I remember, was the purchase of a small cargo of Dutch or American cheeses. These, when they came to hand, proved to be so hard that a knife-blade stood no chance with them. They were more like young grindlestones, as one of them expressed it, than cheeses. What was to be done? It would never do to throw them away. That was out of the question. So Abram Bobs, who was equal to the emergency, brought his handsaw one night and divided them out into a number of saleable pieces. When cut, they had the appearance of brown ivory, and were nearly as hard. There must have been some aching teeth and jaws before those same cheeses were finally polished off. I was amused with a remark made on one occasion by an old fellow best known by the sobriquet of Jobber Pilling's Father. He had a two-foot rule, and was trying to take the dimensions of a deal board on which he was at work. The figures on his two foot, however, were quite illegible by reason of the blade being either soiled or worn. Spitting on it and giving it a rub with his coat-sleeve, 
he looked shrewdly at me and remarked, This thing wants kestnin o'er again. Whether he meant that the application of water would improve it, or that the figures would do with recutting, I don't just know, but the christening simile would be applicable either way. By the way, we often find in Lancashire the sons and daughters having the names of their father and mother applied to them, by way of recognition, along with their own, as for example, Georgia Bobs, Dicker Owd Sallies, Billa Jacks, and so on. But this is the only instance I remember of the father being distinguished by a reference to the son. Jobber Pilling, the son, was the more pronounced character in the family, and so the elder representative of the name was known as Jobber Pilling's favour. When people are reputed to be wealthy, and especially if they make a parade of their wealth, it is sometimes said in the vernacular that they fair stinkin' a brass. Vulgar as is this phrase, it has the true Chaucerian ring about it. You might almost take it to be a quotation from the Canterbury Tales. For expressiveness and force it cannot be surpassed. The stories that are told of some of the wealthier inhabitants of Rossendale are curious and amusing. Same as yo, Maester George, has become a classic saying. It originated thus. The occasion was the, the occasion was the election of a poor law guardian, an exciting event when political parties, Whig and Tory, brought out their candidates and put forth their strength in the contest. Political feeling ran high then as now, and the guardians were elected on the colour of their politics, quite independently of their special fitness for the position. George Hargreaves, Esquire, J.P., was the ruling Tory spirit in the very heart of the Rossendale Valley in bygone years. A man of the staunchest integrity and blameless life, but Tory to the backbone. The voters, many of whom were dependent on him in various ways, because he was a man of property and an employer of labour, were crowding into the schoolroom to record their votes, George himself marshalling his partisans and scanning the faces of doubtful supporters. "'Who are you voting for, Sam?' spoke out Mr. H. to a sturdy Rossendalian, elbowing his way among the crowd. "'Same as yo, Maester George,' answered Sam with a nod. "'Same as yo,' and Maester George nodded back with a gratified smile. "'So, it is same as yo, Maester George, when the opinions of any present-day political or other weak-backed inhabitant are in question.' A number of stories are related of Mr. John Brooks of Sunnyside. Sam Brooks, the well-known Manchester banker, and John were brothers. The family came originally from Wally. One of the stories I have heard is too good to be lost. When the Act of Incorporation was obtained, and government by a municipality was first introduced into Manchester, it is said that John Brooks was asked to stand as a town councillor or alderman. Being doubtful as to the expediency of taking such a step, he promised to consult his brother Sam, and be guided by his advice. Accordingly, he spoke to Sam on the subject, informing him that he, John, had been asked to take office as a new-fangled town councillor. What did he think of it? Would it be wise and prudent for him to agree to the request? "'Will they pay you for it?' inquired Sammy, with a quick interrogative glance at his brother. Oh, no, John replied. There'll be no pay for the job. Nothing for it but the honour of the position. Umph! Honour be hanged, responded Sammy. 
let me give thee a bit of advice john whenever thou does aught for naught do it for thysel reverting again to handloom days and stepping over by sharniford and tooter hill the high ridge separating rossendale from the todmorden valley by way of doolesgate where war assisted at the poker weighing we may encounter some of the finest examples of lancashire and yorkshire border character their conversation overflowing with mother wit and ready repartee one old dame recounting the struggles of poor folk in the days when there was plenty of law but a sad lack of justice dealt out to the workers and describing the kind of men and their servants that held the noses of the poor to the grindstone whilst they themselves were laying the foundations of big fortunes spoke thus yea it were hard work for poor folk in those days we geet sixpence a cut for waving cuts and in a whole week working long hours we couldna get through more nor about nine or ten cuts for they were twenty yards long apiece that would mat five shillings a week at most and when we had finished em we had to carry em on our backs two or three mile to the taker in i can remember my old mon once taking his cuts in and he had tramped through the wheat and snow on a cowed winter's morning and when he had getting his cuts passed by the taker in he axed him if he would give him a penny to buy a penny muffin to eat as he were going back home but the taker in said to him eh mon if i was to give thee a penny it would be giving thee all the profit that our maesters get for a cut whereas at the time they were probably making a clear guinea by each of them they're nearly working at a loss now by every cut you're waving no it will never do to give thee pennies i that reckless way john it were hard work in those days i can tell thee to get porridge and skim milk twice a day we happen a bit of bacon on sundays once i had to go for a near to stoodley pike across langfield moor wi me cuts it were a raw cowed morning very early before it were gradely leet and when i geet to the ticker in eh and they were ardens with those tickers in he says hello are you here so soon betty won't you flayed a meet in the dale this morning as you come across langfield moor i said now to the sort i were non fear to meet in the dale up o the moor for i knew thang met's wheel that i'd find the dale when i geet here saving habits to a much greater extent than prevails in the large towns are a characteristic of the working people in these outlying and semi-rural districts this is accounted for to some extent by the absence of temptation to the spending of money and so the habit of thrift gains strength by the daily practice of it just as the opposite holds good where the opportunities for squandering money and the temptations to do so are multiplied by reason also of the comparative isolation a more marked simplicity of character is observable among the people rambling with a friend over the moors above walston we called at a lonely farmhouse to obtain such refreshments with bread and cheese as the good wife might be able to provide with as much gravity as he could command my friend inquired of the damsel who waited on us at what hour the theatre opened up here she hesitated for a moment as though trying to realise the idea of a theatre and then with equal gravity and greater sincerity explained that there was no theatre in their locality though occasionally in the schoolroom some mile and a half distant they had penny readings in winter and at times a missionary meeting the theatre is a luxury in which they do not care to indulge very largely 
it may be that the matter-of-fact qualities of their minds have been cultivated at the expense of the imagination like those of the youth to whom i lent a copy of the pilgrim's progress recommending him to read it when he brought it back i asked him how he had enjoyed the book his answer was scarcely what i expected and it was spoken in a contemptuous tone why says he it's nobbut a dream chancing to be in london one evening and going along the strand i came across two old lancashire acquaintances working men sauntering in the opposite direction they had come up on a three days cheap trip to view the sights of the metropolis desiring to be of assistance to them in that direction and to make myself agreeable i invited them to go with me to one of the theatres this proposal however did not seem to attract them the theatre was hardly in their line so by way of alternative i suggested that they should accompany me to the codgers hall at the bottom of fleet street and listen to a political discussion this suggestion they eagerly accepted and strolling along we shortly found ourselves snugly ensconced in the discussion forum each in an armchair a pint of stout in a pewter on the table in front of each of us and long clay pipes in our mouths the subject of the evening was some burning political question and the discussion went on with great animation i saw that my friends were enjoying it immensely at length nudging one of them i inquired how do you like it jim taking his pipe from between his teeth his face beaming with a kind of solemn satisfaction like it he replied it's same as being in heaven he had in fact attained to the very acme of enjoyment comfortably seated in his chair enjoying his pipe his sense of hearing charmed by the orator's well-turned periods and as he expressed it he could sup when he'd a mind i have often seen my friends since then and i find that that evening spent in the discussion room at codgers hall is marked with a red letter in their memory in one of the hamlets lying beyond todmorden in the burnley valley there was a curious specimen of the lancashire border character hiram fielden who kept a grocer's shop and dealt also in the other commodities expected to be inquired for by a village community in his younger days hiram had been a cotton weaver in a mill but his ambition was to save a little money get married and open a badger's shop by the exercise of great frugality along with the help of the savings which his wife betty brought him he achieved his purpose he began business in a humble way at first but gradually as his customers increased his business grew and instead of continuing to vend treacle from a two-gallon can he at last ventured on giving an order for a whole hogshead at once the arrival of this consignment created quite a sensation in the village the like had never been seen there before and the urchins who watched the process of unloading the precious cask and saw it safely deposited end up in the corner of the store smacked their lips as their imagination pictured the luscious reservoir of sweets in the course of the day a further consignment this time of whitewash brushes arrived and betty mounting a chair in the corner and then stepping on to the top of the treacle barrel was just in the act of hanging the brushes on the hook in the ceiling when the barrel end gave way underneath her and down she flopped up to the armpits into the syrupy mass hiram who was busy at the back of the shop hearing the crash hurried in to ascertain the cause and stood for a few moments gazing in consternation at the head of his better half 
barely visible above the barrel edge what was to be done ruin and disgrace and ridicule stared him in the face but with great presence of mind he ran to the shop door closed it shot the bolt and then drew down the window blind mounting the barrel and securing a footing on its edge he succeeded by the help of a clothesline which he looped on to the hook overhead and which she stoutly grasped in gradually extricating betty from her savoury bath carefully he stroked the treacle from her as she rose ceilingwards and that no loss of the merchandise might ensue at the same time wiping her down with a cloth dipped in a bucket of water and thus all traces of betty's misadventure were soon obliterated and nobody but themselves any the wiser hiram in recounting the circumstance to me confidentially after long years had elapsed declared that the run on that hogshead of treacle was immense it was relished by his customers old and young and was the occasion of more oatmeal being consumed in the village than had ever previously been known so that what at first appeared to hiram to be an irretrievable misfortune turned out profitable in more ways than one eh but mon said hiram shaking his head and with a solemn countenance that hogshead of treacle was a ruination of me ruination i exclaimed in puzzled surprise how do you mean well you see me and our betty had been wed for three year and up to then we'd had no childer but who began from that time forrard and never once stopped till who had thirteen eh that barrel of treacle was a ruination of me end of lancashire characters and places